My favorite is just somehow make other countries pay more for drugs. That one's the silliest. Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. We've got Tara Lynn, Sarah Cliff here today. Uh, I want to talk about prescription drug pricing. Um, the Trump administration rolled out some new proposals on that we're going to talk about later. Uh, but I know it's just this is like a big topic of concern. I mean, I know my friends who work just in politics, they tell me that you know, when they look at surveys, like what are people worried about? What's bothering people about America today as the economy improves? The high cost of prescription drugs is like a big issue for a lot of people. It's It's been a concern for a while, but it seems to be getting worse on the business end. There's like a lot of weird mergers happening that seem to have something to do with prescription drugs. And, and Sarah... Sarah knows a lot about this and hopefully I know some things about hopefully, drugs. hopefully can help us explain like what's like what's what's going on here like why are people like breaking the bank okay. yeah so so let's just start with kind of like a few basic facts the United States routinely has the highest prices for prescription drugs in the world and you know we're often talking about literally the exact same pill the exact same injectable the exact same type of chemotherapy it just costs three, four, ten times more to purchase it in the United States than to purchase it abroad. So that is— And that's like the the list price charged by the pharmaceutical maker. Which does come down in a very murky way through different negotiations with insurance companies and these rebates that are there. So it is hard to get great data on what is actually being paid for a drug and what is actually being paid for a drug likely— varies depending on which health insurance company that you have. That being said, I'd say the, this kind of leads into the other thing that's unique about American healthcare and um, becoming more unique about American healthcare is that patients bear a lot of the brunt of those high prices. So one of the things I think that's actually changed the most, why you, you're seeing in survey data, a lot of it from Kaiser Family Foundation, that the biggest concern in healthcare right now is the price of prescription drugs, is that deductibles have been rising really, really quickly. Right now, most Americans, and this is outside of Obamacare, like most people who get insurance at work, they have a deductible above $1,000 at this point, which means that they are spending a decent amount of money, that they're being confronted with the cost. And that wasn't true even a decade ago. A decade ago, $1,000 deductibles were pretty rare. Now they are the most common type of deductible and the employer-sponsored market. So you see, you know, the prices have been steadily rising and there wasn't really like a big policy chain. I would say like drug makers like um, Martin Shekrelli of Pharma Bro fame, like figured out some like interesting things they could do to really jack up prices in the American system. But I think the larger thing happening is that you saw deductibles rise. So all of a sudden we were on the hook for the price of our drugs. And you saw some of these like blockbuster drugs come on the market, that some of them did like really great things. Like this drug, Savaldi, cures hepatitis C, which is a fantastic innovation. And the company that makes it, Gilead, you know, they, it's not, no, I think that's the name of, sorry, I was watching Handmaid's Tale last night. I was like, did I confuse those? But I think it is actually the name it is just of the, the drug maker of the things. and the dystopian future in Handmaid's Tale. Um, anyways, Gilead realized they had an innovative product on their hand and they charged a lot for that innovation. Um, you know, the other thing you see happening because there are no constraints in the American system is high charges for things that are not necessarily that innovative, that high charges because they might be a little bit better than the last drug, but not, you know, curing a disease that was previously incurable. So those are kind of like the things that are going on, the things that are stressing out Americans is that we are on the hook for a greater share of our prescription drug costs. And at the same time, you're seeing a rise in these really, really expensive blockbuster drugs. And, you know, unlike every other country, which would have some kind of government unit come in, negotiate on behalf of all citizens, sometimes say no to things, sometimes say, you know what, that drug that's only a little bit better than the last drug, we're not going to pay whatever price the drug maker is wants to charge for it. We're just not going to cover that drug. In the United States, you don't have that downward pressure. So you just see drug makers charging what they want and um, us generally being willing to 
pay for it if we have insurance, although get pretty stressed out about those costs. Bearing in mind that I would say that I'm the audience surrogate for this episode because I know very little, but the fact of the matter is that the average Weeds listener probably knows more about prescription drug pricing than I do. But it seems like thinking back to the debate around the Affordable Care Act in 2009-2010, this was something that people knew was coming, right? That, like, this was part of the argument for why healthcare reform needed to happen then was that it was going to, like, bend the cost curve and improve purchasing power and all of that jazz. Like, why hasn't that happened? Yeah, so oh, I th- it's worse than that. <laughs> I mean, do you want to you, you, you get into this? Well, sure. You so, can talk about this. So one longstanding Democratic Party proposal has been to, in one form or another, impose some kind of price controls on prescription drugs, which is standard practice in foreign countries. And there's a lot of different versions of that kicking around. But one obvious thing, if Democrats were going to pass a big health care bill, would have been to address that, right, to address the price of prescription drugs, because that would have been something that sort of helps all kinds of normal middle class people, but also helps the poor, things like that. The Obama administration opted not to do that in the Affordable Care Act negotiations. And they struck, I would say, a a shady backroom deal with the prescription drug industry in which the prescription drug industry agreed to back legislation on the grounds that more insurance would create more customers for pharma in exchange for Obama keeping prescription drug price controls out of the bill. And to the administration's credit, Obama did a lot of things over the years that sort of had the form of whether it was like on immigration, it was like, we'll deport everyone and then we'll get a path to citizenship or, you know, we'll like have fracking everywhere and magically a cap and trade bill will emerge. This bargain actually stuck. Like pharma put a lot of money into advocacy for the Affordable Care Act and they they really like pushed for it and then at some future point, like the terms of the deal expired and Obama like went back to the well and was like, we should do something to control prescription drug prices. So it was like a it was like a hard nosed political bargain, not like a dopey political bargain. But yeah, like this is like a specific thing that happened was like they decided in this comprehensive health reform legislation to not address prescription drug prices. Yeah, and I think the context around that is like if you ask people why that deal was made, they go back to this ad from the 1990s. The names of the people, it's like Harry and Louise. Um, It's this ad that pharma put out during the Clinton care debate that was seen as very influential in turning public opinion against Bill Clinton's health care proposals. And it was these two seniors talking about, um, you know, how they couldn't get their medicine and how terrible things were under Clinton care. Pharma is an incredibly powerful lobby. The New York Times had an article about how pharma, you know, and they has been really revving up their lobbying machine to prepare for this exact um, speech that we're talking about that Trump has been preparing on drug prices. And that sometimes if you're a congressional aide, it would not be a surprise to have a meeting with two congressional aides and 10 pharma lobbyists. Like they show up en masse. They have a lot of money. If you've heard, I I hear these ads all the time on the radio here, um, this Go Boldly campaign that is focused on, you know, promoting the work that America's biopharmaceutical industry does. They are, are a very formidable foe. And it was basically seen in the eyes of the Obama administration that you couldn't pursue a health care bill without getting pharma on your side, that you would just get hammered too hard and that you had to do something to make sure that they didn't produce a Harry and Louise ad this time around. So that's kind of like the context to the deal. I think there, uh, the Republican repeal effort like raised some questions in my mind, like whether they are actually as powerful as Democrats thought. You know, Republicans passed their bill through the House with the opposition of basically every major healthcare player. So maybe the rules have changed a little bit, but that's kind of what was going on in that context and like how the Obama administration made that strategic decision, but how it leaves us in a place, you know, eight years later where you have prescription drug costs as the biggest concern that Americans have with the healthcare system. And I think the the like economics of this, right, are that the marginal cost of manufacturing a pill is super low, 
Right. And some of these other things, the unit cost is a little bit higher, you know, for cancer treatments, things like that. But it's still pretty cheap, right? The manufacture of medicine is not expensive. But the research and development of medicine is very expensive. So when you have like high fixed costs and variable marginal costs, whether that's like hotel rooms, uh, airline seats, um, or prescription drugs, you tend to see a lot of pricing complexities, right? Like when it comes to like if you want to buy, you know, a truck, there's like a limited range of prices at which that is for sale to anybody because it's closely related to how much it costs to make the truck. Uh, but with a pill, it's not like that, right? It's, it's all over the map and it becomes purely a tactical bargaining question between the buyer and the seller. And with drugs, because it can save your life, willingness to pay is t- generally quite Well, and because high. you have, and you're buying with your insurance usually. Right. Well, but I mean, but in general, right? I mean, even if it was single-handedly, right? It's like, if you had the money. Sure. I'm just cu- saying you have, that, yes. so that gets you to the threshold right. of, you have the money because you have an insurance plan. Right. And you have high willingness right. to it, pay. Right. right. If you have hepatitis C, you will pay a lot of money for a hepatitis C cure if, if they can make you do it. But then conversely, if the buyers can make the company sell for cheap, it's like it's in their interests to sell for cheap. So it all becomes this like game of like bluff, essentially, where where it's like whole foreign countries will say like nobody in England is going to buy this drug unless you give us a price break. And if you can like sell the pharmaceutical company on the idea that like you're going to carry out that threat, like they might give you some really cheap drugs, right? But then on the other hand, like they might walk away and say like, no, your people are going to suffer and die and there's going to be a political outcry, right? So it, 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 become, it becomes about the, the bargaining dynamic rather than about the actual cause. So, I mean, I think there's also a behavioral like an- economics problem here, right? Like when you are choosing whether to consume a healthcare good, if you are insured, you rarely know exactly how much it is that you're going to pay. That's rarely information you're given in advance. It's, you know, very few people when they're being told you can get a prescription for this drug, have the information in front of them of exactly how much will be reimbursed, what their copay will be, whether they've hit their deductible for the year or not. So, you know, that brings us to the question of what is a drug price anyway? If we're saying that prices are too high, it seems like a lot of the problem here is that people can't agree on what you name as the price of any particular drug, both because it varies, obviously, from insurer to insurer, but also there seems to be this ongoing argument about, is it even fair to talk about the list price of drugs in any circumstance, and what is the label? Like That seems like a kind of definitional problem that can shape the entire debate, right? Because it's impossible to have perfect information if you don't even know what the price is. Yeah, and this is, I mean, true all across healthcare, where you have this big disparity between charges and prices. Um, and I see this, like, I've been working a lot in emergency room billing, and the price that the hospital charges and the price that the insurance ends up paying sometimes are the same, sometimes they're hugely different. Sometimes those list prices do matter to someone who is uninsured and doesn't have an insurance company negotiating for them. We have some good, like, claims databases that can tell us what people are actually paying. But you're right, you know, to your point, it's a huge variation. And I think the other, you know, thing that comes up is like, I don't see a lot of people who are angry, like my insurance is paying a lot of money for this drug. There's a lot of anger that I, the consumer, have to pay a lot of money for this drug. So I think actually like the most important price in this debate is the cost sharing that the individual is paying. I guess most important in terms of like a political debate and like why this is happening, I'd say bigger macro level for like how much we're spending on drugs, the prices that insurers are paying also matters. But I think, you know, Dylan Scott, he made a good point in a piece he wrote about this. Everything trickles down from the list price. Like the list price is where you start. The list price is what you make rebates on. The list price is what you negotiate from. The list price is how Medicaid and Medicare determine like what they are going to pay for drugs. So the list price, I I wouldn't throw it out completely. It still matters as kind of a benchmark, even if it does lead to some confusion around what is actually being paid. It's not a total fake number. It actually does matter in some significant ways. Right. Um, But I mean, you know, in political terms, right, it's like if we had some kind of policy that like had prevented deductibles from getting so high, then probably people would not be talking about 
oh, I'm so upset about the price of prescription drugs. What people would be talking about instead is they're so upset at the rapidly rising health insurance premiums, right? So it's like there's this like political balloon, right, which like compared to 20 years ago, the insurance companies have done a good job of like tossing the hot potato out of their hands. And so like now the insurance companies are much more like, sure, we'll cover whatever, but oh, there's going to be a high deductible and people grumble about it. But then they're like, geez, these prescription drugs cost a lot. And like that's what the insurance companies were hoping to achieve with the high deductible policies, right, is to make people feel that the things insurance is buying are too expensive, right? So like in a super idealized view, you just like somehow <laughs> magically become more prudent in your healthcare consumption. And I think a more real world view, you become more grumpy about what prescription drugs cost. But like either way, right, like this is the insurance company's plan essentially working. Like premiums are growing, but at like a reasonable-ish level, people are complaining at pharmaceutical companies rather than insurance companies. And now we have the question of, like, can you do anything about it? But, like, the other function that insurers are serving here is that they're the ones with the negotiating leverage vis-a-vis pharma companies, right? Like, Sarah, an analogy that you've made in your work on drug pricing that I found super, super useful is that, like, compared to European countries, which are negotiating prices collectively and are, like, you know, like Costco in the pharmacy market where the U.S., because it doesn't do collective country level price negotiation, is like the corner pharmacy that doesn't have the leverage to like force a price down for something. Insurers, though, like if they're not Costco, they could at least be like Walgreens or Super X or like some smaller pharmacy, you know, that they it seems like they do have a certain amount of collective negotiating power here, right? They they do, definitely. Um, but I think the other dynamic going on is that there, and I think this is one of the things like I found confusing at points, like I'm pretty sure the largest insurance companies in the United States have more members than the entire population of England. So like, why can't they get the deal that England does? I think that one of the things that's going on is you also have the insurance companies competing with each other. So if you think of the drugstores, if Walgreens doesn't carry the thing you want, you can go to CVS and start buying your products there. Like if they don't carry, um, you know, the exact type of Sour Patch Kids that Matt and I enjoy eating, I can go down the street to CVS and purchase them there. So there is a strong incentive to cover more because when you go to your, um, you know, employers who are covering lots of people, the HR department like does not want to deal with some employee who like is prescribed some, you know, expensive chemotherapy drug and told no by the insurance company. They'd rather have like an insurance company that covers that expensive chemotherapy cost. The prices get spread out across all the members. So like all of our premiums go up, but we don't really notice it because it's kind of tiny. So I think that dynamic of having an insurance system where there's competition for the business of like large companies, it, it creates an incentive to go very broad in coverage. And, you know, the the disincentive would be, well, people might leave my insurance plan because my premiums are getting too high. But then as Matt says, like you raise the deductibles and, and it is much less noticeable to have your premiums go up a few bucks than to have a colleague who, you know, can't get access to this drug that they feel really strongly about getting access to. One topic I wanted to get into, this is actually a, this will be a bit of a preview of our AMA, someone asked us to discuss kind of how we felt about the relationship between spending on prescription drugs and innovation. And there's this argument, and, you know, I'll ask maybe Matt to start because I have some thoughts on this too. There's an argument that gets made, like, because we spend more on drugs, we get more innovation in return. And I'm curious, like, how you think about that argument. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, right? I mean, look, it makes sense in principle, right, that, like, If you want people to invest in developing new drugs, you should make it profitable to develop new drugs. Um, It's very profitable to develop a new drug in the United States in in most cases, at least if if it's a drug that would help a large number of people because the prices are high. And you may not like paying a high price for prescription drugs, but you would really hate like the drug not being available. And you're really, really 
excited that like scientists are employed by pharmaceutical companies to, to do this kind of stuff. You know, and an idea that comes up here, I mean, Trump sort of mentioned this, we'll, we'll get to it later, but that, that like the rest of the world is like arguably not pulling its weight with all these these price controls and that rather than thinking of America's high prices as the problem, you could think it's the Europeans' low prices as the problem. If they all paid American prices, then developing new prescription drugs would be much more lucrative. Maybe we could cure tons of stuff. I think that sort of makes sense. To me, the big problem with it is that there's such a poor alignment between what's the market for a medication and what's the like – social need mm-hmm. for a medication, right? So like a drug that, you know, cured baldness with no problematic side effects would make you a ton of money because so many of <laughs> us are bald and it's moderately annoying and like I would enjoy having a remedy for that. But at the same time, it's not a big deal. You know, like like life goes on, right? Whereas like a disease that kills modest number of people but that like most people don't get is like not necessarily that lucrative. And this is where you have a lot of, right? It's like mm-hmm. people are really sick. They need medicine. The medicine is very expensive for them. But it's not clear that this is really creating like important commercial incentives to develop these kinds of drugs. So much research winds up being publicly funded or funded through charities, like exactly for that reason. It's not like, oh, the pharmaceutical companies, they're like, getting a free ride on the taxpayers. It's like it's not really a commercial enterprise. Like we sort of decide like these are important public health priorities. We want to put money into it. But then it seems like maybe you should really lean into that, right, and say like there should be a big global fund like jointly administered by representatives from a bunch of different countries and, you know, maybe like Bill Gates could be on their board and they would like hand out money to people and then all the research would be free. I mean, I, I'm i not like an, an expert in this, but it it always strikes me that there's like a real tug of war between like the economic logic of innovation in pharmaceuticals and the public health logic of like what are actual medical needs. And we don't really depend on this market mechanism to address our medical needs, like exactly for that reason. And then there's endless questions about how useful some of the new medicines, because like you can point to one that's like super useful, but then there's also a million like, oh, we have a new drug too. And like, maybe it's better, maybe it isn't, but it passes a safe and effective standard and it's under patent. I don't know. So I mean, yeah, you, I, mean, I you think know this more is about the key the thing to understand. So I've seen, you know, I see a lot of people, especially like on the left, blow off this argument saying, no, 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 they just spend all that money on profits and on advertising and like, it's not leading to more innovation. And I, you know, it is certainly true. Pharma has the highest profit margins of the entire healthcare industry. I think you're usually looking at like 15 to 20 percent industry wide. Um, They spend a lot of money on advertising because the United States is one of two countries in the world that lets them advertise their drugs. But I, I think it is a little bit foolish to dismiss the argument that these economic incentives don't matter. Um, One of my favorite studies on this. It's a super simple study, but I think it makes the point pretty clearly was from um, an economist at MIT, Amy Finkelstein of um, probably of Oregon health study fame to our listeners. She did a great study looking at what happened to drug trial starts for a certain vaccine when Medicare started saying, okay, we're going to cover this class of vaccine. And lo and behold, when Medicare, a major payer in the United States, decides to start covering a drug, drug companies listen to that. They're like, oh, a giant new purchaser. And you see more starts of trials. So you you see the market really clearly responding to a signal that we can get more money for doing a specific thing. So I think there's, you know, a compelling argument that like it's not that a blockbuster drug is made and then a company says, oh, we're going to reinvest this profits we made in more research it's more like if you are an investor looking at all sorts of things you can invest in. And this is, uh, you know, an argument Craig Garthwaite, an economist um, at Northwestern, has made to me before that I found very clarifying. It's more of like you're an investor sitting down thinking like, well, what's going to make me a lot of money? Where should I put my money? And if pharma is going to reward you really well, more than like investing in an iPhone app or investing in like 
I don't know, Tesla or like some, you know, Blue Origin or whatever other things you could be investing in, then you'll probably choose pharma and that'll be more money flowing into research. I think the place where this all breaks down is that our healthcare system, the American healthcare system in particular, it doesn't do a good job of just rewarding innovative drugs. It rewards a lot of drugs that are expensive and the same as the last drug or just barely different from the last drug. So we are paying for innovation, but we're also paying for a lot of drugs that aren't that innovative. Like a prime example of this is someone like Martin Shkreli buying up a patent on a drug that used to cost a few bucks and just jacking up the price hugely because he can do that. So that is rewarded. There, there's nothing innovative about what Martin Shkreli did with his drug. He just raised the price a lot. Um, and that's something that our system allows. I think one of the really tough questions to deal with, and I don't I don't have a firm answer on this, is how we want to value this trade-off of innovation and access. If you accept that spending more money leads to some more amount of innovation, are we maybe over-investing in innovation? Do we actually maybe just want more access to reward less, but there'll be lower prices, so there'll probably be a little bit less investment in innovation, but more people could access those drugs? And I think that's a pretty tough question to answer. But I think you can make an argument, like maybe we're over-investing in innovation in our system and we want to invest more in access and we're okay with that trade-off of like a few fewer drug trial starts, for example, to have prices be a little bit lower. But I think there's, there's also a question to me of whether our investment in innovation is structured well. Right. Or structured terribly. So like, That's right. But I mean, point. so like what your big example there was that Medicare was going to start covering something, right? So like that's a public program. And there's this very like – it's like a simulacrum of a market. But it's like the government decides what it will buy on behalf of consumers and then that drives private sector research priorities. That's different from consumers' choices driving private sector research priorities. You lose the, like, freedominess of a market mechanism because the decision is actually being made by a government board. But if the decision is going to be made by a government entity, like, you could do it a different way. I read a few years ago um, Dava Sobel's book, Longitude, and it's about um, how they developed a, a reliable method for, you know, sailboats to calculate uh, the, the longitude where they are. And, and the way that happened was the British parliament said, like, we would really like someone to invent a tool that does this. So we will create a large prize for anybody who, who does it. So that was a financial incentive and it was structured and then it was paid out. Uh, but once the prize was rewarded, then they just like published it. And it was an initial idea of patents was that a valuable innovation should be registered with the patent office to explain how it works so that other people could know, right? And it that's all gotten turned around now. So it's like a monopoly and nobody else is allowed to use it. But, you know, we could say, Drugs are going to be really, really cheap, but we're going to create like huge prizes for if you could have an HIV vaccine, like we will just write you a check for a billion dollars. Uh, but then the vaccine is going to be free, you know, because like you, if, if what you want is the innovation, you could pay for the innovation. Right. I think there's also – it gets to a question of what government decides is enough of a social health problem to be worth mandating or subsidizing. I think it's not a coincidence that we're talking about the flu vaccine, which is a good example of, you know, something that has become much more aggressively pushed as people have become aware of, well, even if you're young and healthy and probably won't die of the flu, you should get vaccinated because somebody who's more vulnerable, you know, you want to make sure that herd immunity is in place. And that's not just the case with vaccines, right? Like there are definitely examples of treatment being mandated or de facto mandated because it's an infectious thing. Like if your kid has ringworm, your school officials are probably going to say, do not send your kid back to school until they're asymptomatic, which means that you have to get that treated. But not every disease is infectious, but that doesn't mean that not every disease has social costs. And especially when we're talking about a healthcare industry that is literally about cost pooling, 
it seems really hard to me to draw the distinction between something like the flu where like, yes, the reason we don't want you to get sick is because you will get people around you sick with the same thing and something like, well, you're on Medicaid. So if you get sick and have to be treated more expensively later, that's more of a drain on taxpayer dollars or there are social costs of you know, having a less healthy, more obese, less athletic population generally. Or if you're incapacitated, that's going to reduce your total earning potential. That's going to make it harder for your kids to get the education they need. Like, it does seem like there is a bright line in health policymaking between infectious and not infectious health conditions that doesn't necessarily match the idea that public health is a social problem more generally. All right, so let's take a break, and then we'll come back to what yeah. President Trump Donald Trump's going to fix this. He's going to fix all of it. If you like the weeds, you probably like being able to dig into all kinds of different topics. I know I do. And The Great Courses Plus is a great way to do that. It gives you unlimited access to about anything that interests you from leading professors and experts in all kinds of fields. They've got over 10,000 lectures at this point in all kinds of topics. These academic subjects like history, psychology, and economics it can help you practice mindfulness. They have courses on, which is, you know, a great way to just sort of improve your life. And you can watch or listen to The Great Courses Plus anytime, anywhere. It's like a video lecture experience if you have the time for that. You can put it in audio mode if you're walking around, you need eyes. Incredible flexibility. It's really cool. So a course that they're promoting now is Capitalism versus Socialism, Comparing Economic Systems. It's really, really cool. I mean, this is a big question people are talking about more and more, and they really sort of break down how different countries handle some of these kinds of things. It's a more nuanced issue than you would think, right? Almost every country has some aspects of public provision, some reliance on private markets. But, you know, how is the health system organized? How are tariffs and trade? How is taxes and social services organized? It's really interesting. If you're into the political discussions we talk about, you're going to love this course. I want you to have the excitement of learning from The Great Courses Plus, too. So we've got a special limited time offer for you. It's one free month of unlimited access to enjoy any of their lectures. But to get it, you have to sign up with our special URL. So start your free month today. You sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. Remember, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. Okay, so on Friday, Donald Trump gave this speech on drug prices that has been in the works for a few weeks. It kept getting delayed. It finally happened Friday. And it it was a bit of an unknown what was going to happen there. One of the things that's been notable about President Trump, and in a lot of ways he's been an unorthodox Republican making these references to allowing Medicare to bid or negotiate prices for drugs, which has generally been a priority of Democrats, you know, giving Medicare the possibility to haggle with insurance companies to maybe even say no for drugs they don't feel are worth it. That's a much bigger role for government. And it's something I remember Donald Trump right before he took office, he gave this speech from New York where he you know, made a comment about how we're going to let Medicare bid for drugs and the prices are going to fall. We have to lower the drug prices. The competition, the key to lower drug prices. We have competition, but a lot of times the competition dissipates. I'll oppose anything that makes it harder for smaller, younger companies to take the risk of bringing a product to a vibrantly competitive market. That includes price fixing by the biggest dog in the market, Medicare, which is what's happening. But we can increase competition and bidding wars big time. So there was kind of this question, like, will they go there? And the answer was no, they will not go there. So we did not see any sort of proposal, you know, that would take him out of step with his party about letting Medicare negotiate drug prices. Instead, we got this 44-page blueprint on drug pricing. And I think one of the things that tells you a lot about this blueprint is that um, an expert I follow on Twitter, Larry Lovett from the Kaiser Family Foundation, He did a control F for question marks and found that in this 44-page document, there are 136 question marks. So a lot of this is just posing (laughs) questions. What if we do X? Why is this like this? It is light on the policy and very heavy on the like, well, here's something we could do. Maybe we do that. A A lot of questions. I'd say the things that generally jumped out at me and others are some interesting proposals I hadn't seen before, one about persuading other countries just to pay more for their drugs. So the theory is the United States, you know, are paying eight, nine times um, what other countries are. What if we use our different trade negotiations to 
ask other countries to kick in more? Would that lower the prices here in the United States? So that's one thing that is there in the proposal. There's not really a clear path towards getting there. Another one is requiring drug companies to put their prices on their advertisements. So when you see an ad for, I don't know, Viagra or like whatever you're saying ads for on TV, you'd also see like a little sticker of how much that drug costs, which again is not something I've heard before in the space of drug pricing. Those were two of the ones that kind of jumped out at me. Um, you know, that last one really struck me as kind of just like a political act of shaming drug companies, which we haven't really seen work. And it gets to kind of some Dara's point, like, what do you even put on as the price? So those are two that jumped out at me. And then there were some kind of nods to fixing the patent system. One of the things that I think causes a lot of frustration is we do actually see a big movement to generics right now. About 90% of the drugs prescribed in the United States are generic drugs, but they're a small fraction of what we actually spend. It's a 10% that remain patented. And you see drug companies doing things like not giving the FDA a sample of their drugs so that they compare the generic to make sure that the two are the same. So there was some nod towards trying to tighten up some of that patent gaming that's going on that I think is a pretty bipartisan priority. But those were the two of this, you know, 44-page report that kind of jumped out at me as the the new contributions to American drug pricing policy. I mean, the getting the foreigners to pay more idea, I mean, you, I guess you could make a case for it, but it's it's a sort of magisterial example of how everything gets turned around in the Trump ringer. And like what was initially on the campaign trail, he was like a different kind of Republican who would be like – you know, like as racist as your most racist uncle, uh, but was going to like take on the prescription drug companies. Like now what he's going to do is he's going to take on foreigners so that prescription drug companies can make more money. And to be fair, I guess, I mean, America is a net exporter of prescription drugs to the world. Traditionally, helping American prescription drug companies has been a priority in U.S. trade negotiations. Not quite on this level, but like uh, – on the other hand, like the Trans-Pacific Partnership <laughs> would have gotten foreign companies to pay higher prices for American-made pharmaceuticals. I don't know whether that's a big deal or not. Personally, I always thought that was a kind of weird thing for the U.S. government to be going to bat for. But Donald Trump said that was like the worst deal in history and a rape of the American public. And now he's coming around. He's like, really, we should find some way to get, you know, like that was the way, right? Like it, it was it was in the deal. This ads thing just seems like a like a total joke. Like they already make them put the weird voiceover on the ads where they're like, by the way, this pill will make you vomit and die, right? Like to say also like and it also costs money, like who cares? I have a question about this whole negotiating other countries up thing. But but I do want to point out that if you think about the pharmaceutical industry, it is more than most other industries, maybe even more so than any other industries, an industry that relies on America having a large share of the people who have the talent and education to be research scientists, either working directly for the pharmaceutical industry or working for American research universities that are partnering with the pharmaceutical industry. And it is not entirely clear to me that a world in which fewer people are allowed to stay for 18 months after they've completed their degree courses so that they can work in the technical industry, which is a regulatory change on immigration that the Trump administration is moving toward, or like fewer people are coming to the U.S. on high-skilled visas because their spouses can't work and their spouses want, don't want to just be housewives, which is another regulatory change they're making. Like they're Regulatory agenda and legislative agenda on immigration seems like the sorts of things that might affect the ability of the American pharmaceutical industry to innovate in future, uh, which is just a flag that I would raise for any Trump administration officials who are listening to this podcast. Um, but I do think that the question I have with this whole negotiate other countries upward thing is it's not just that the difference between the American pricing system and other countries is the price negotiation. There's also a difference in whether other another country will consider it worth it to bring the drug to market in that country. There are different standards for like whether it contributes anything, which is another thing that I've learned from Sarah's reporting. And it seems questionable to me whether you could 
actually get other countries to pay more for drugs that they currently think are worth the cost-benefit analysis if you're not necessarily promising that those drugs are also going to be more robust on adding more innovation, that kind of thing. Like, it it seems like it's missing part of the reason that this process is different, that, like, legitimately more drugs are brought to market in the U.S. because in other countries they go, eh, it's not that much of an improvement. We're well, going to keep Also, it even if you could achieve that, like, let's say you work out, like, you get back to TPP, you raise the drug prices, like, let's say that all is assumed away. If I'm a pharma company, why do I lower my prices? No, 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 right. This does, not, ad- in the United this, States. This does not address the state Why don't I just make more money with higher prices right. everywhere? And I will say one of the things I think that was a bit telling is you saw some of the pharma stocks like kind of like teetering leading up to this speech. All of them were up after this speech. Like this was not perceived as something that's going to hammer the industry. Even, you know, there's this weird part of the healthcare system called um, – prescription benefit managers, PBMs, that essentially negotiate. They're like kind of middleman function where they are the middleman between insurance companies and prescription drug companies. They buy for multiple insurers, so it gets this idea they should be buying at Costco, but they're also accepting these rebates that we don't know a lot about, and they might be saving some of those rebates for themselves. And, you know, Trump talked about we're going to get rid of the middleman we're, we're going to, you know, cut down on that, um, you know, inefficiency. And you saw the PBMs. There's three major PBMs in the United States. All their stocks went up afterwards. They were all releasing statements that said, we agree with the president. Like, the problem is that drug prices are too high in the United States. So this was not a speech that, um, you know, that the drug industry felt, like, worried about. If anything, their investors felt, like, pretty good coming out of Friday. But no, and that's why I really do think this like gets to the core of like who Donald Trump is and what he's all about, which is that like candidate Trump was this kind of full spectrum populist, but President Trump is like a very narrowly cynical, you should blame foreigners for your problems. I am going to not do anything to harm like wealthy business interests, right? And so like that's exactly what's here, right? It's like, oh, you're mad about the price of prescription drugs? Blame foreigners for not paying enough, right? And then it's like, well, how does that even relate to you? Not at all, right? Like it it might be good for America if Italians paid higher prices for prescription drugs because then there would be more drug research and development without us doing anything. But there's no way. A company's not going to be like, wow, we just got this windfall from Italy. It's time to give a discount to Americans. Like, that's not how anything works. Like, it's a a total red herring. It's, It's very much at the core of Trumpism. And then as Dar was saying, I mean, you know, If Trump-style policies persist for a long time, you have to think that America will lose its leadership in this field to Switzerland, which has a lot of big pharmaceutical companies and is, like, very consciously uh, open to foreign talent and, like, wants everybody who's, like, smart in science to go move to Geneva and and work for these companies. But in a narrow sense, like, it's just, like, a very pro-business agenda with a lot of, like, mouth noises from Trump that don't relate to the policies. Something I was struck by is like some of these kind of smaller bore proposals. Sarah, you mentioned the kind of patent gaming. There's also something in there that, you know, would float a ban on gag clauses, which literally apparently prevent pharmacists from telling you it would be cheaper if you just paid in cash for this drug rather than going through your insurer. Like some of those tinkering around the edges sort of things, it's easy to wave off as like there is a big problem here and they're not addressing the big problem. But it also seems like because the big problem here is really a trade-off or like it could be a trade-off with innovation and affordability, that working around some of the stuff that's really about price opacity, not about price highness, like the gag clauses, the not have not knowing what the price of the drug is in an advertisement, that possibly could work around the innovation problem. Like it doesn't it seems like if you're if you're going to be doing this kind of small bore stuff, it requires drug companies to be more straightforward about it, but it doesn't necessarily force them to be less innovative. Should we talk about another area of Trump and oh, yeah. Let's yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's let's let's, let's, let's talk take a about... break first, and yes. then we'll come yeah. back to a to a research paper. 
Would you buy a t-shirt for $50 if you knew it really only costs $7 to make? I wouldn't. I mean, I don't think you would want to. And with Everlane, you don't have to. With Everlane, you're never going to overpay for quality clothes. What they do is they make what they call premium essentials. It's like basic stuff, but it's really nice. It's made with the finest materials and without traditional markups. They tell you their real costs so you know that you're never overpaying. That means you know what you're paying for and you know why. They're radically transparent with every step. Uh, It starts with the materials, goes down to the ethical factories that they work with. They sell directly to you, so the prices are are 30 to 50% lower than traditional retailers. The goes look better, they cost less, they last longer. And so they're exactly what they should be. They're simple, they're stylish, they're made from quality materials. I've mentioned the Twill Weekender bag so many times that people have started emailing me with mockery about that. So, you know, I don't know. It's a good bag. Check it out. But there's other good stuff here. I mean, the Cashmere crew is really cool. Their basic t-shirts are amazing. Everybody needs this kind of stuff in their wardrobe. And having it be well-made and not that expensive is just a, it's a thrill. So they're timeless essentials. They're exactly what you're looking for. No frills, just quality. And right now you can check out our personalized collection, everlane.com slash weeds. And that's going to get you free shipping on your first order. So that's everlane.com slash weeds, everlane.com slash weeds, and you'll get some free shipping. This paper is a blockbuster. The Political Impact of Immigration, Evidence from the United States by Anna Maria Mea, Giovanni Perry, and Walter Steingress. Uh, so this is taking a, a question that I think has been widely hypothesized or asserted that immigration would be more popular if the United States had a more jobs and skills-based system like they have in Canada or Australia. I've rarely seen really clear evidence for that proposition. This paper delivers some evidence for that. I, I mean, it's it's not conclusive, but but it's, it's definitely suggestive. And so what they do is they look at county-level effects of immigration inflows and which counties have gotten more Republican and which have gotten less Republican between 1990 and 2010. And they show that counties that have had large inflows of low-skilled immigrants have become more Republican, whereas counties that have had high-skilled immigrants have become more uh, Democratic. So that's like a thing a lot of people have said would be the case, but I had never really seen like studied well. This looks like a pretty good, pretty good study of it. Two things that are interesting to note about this. One is that like we know that the sort of like Trumpiest places in America, the places that have had like the hardcore tilt against immigration are places with very few immigrants. Right, like as a sort of broad generic effect, like there's not a lot of immigration of any kind to West Virginia or Kentucky, um, but those places are, are super conservative. So that had led some people, I would say myself included, to just completely dismiss the idea that like the nature of the immigrants was having any impact on people. So there's evidence here that that is wrong, that even if the absolute numbers of immigrants coming in are low, uh, there is a relationship between voting behavior and who those immigrants are. Uh, but the other thing that that I think Derek can maybe say more about is that often when we talk about this in an American policy context, a high-skilled immigrant is like you have a master's degree or you're a computer programmer, like a very like elect view. And the low-skilled immigrants is like everybody else, like normal people, right? In this framework, the low-skilled immigrants don't have high school degrees. So they're like John Kelly's rural peasants from Central America and everybody else is high-skilled. So like a guy with a 12th grade education is not, you know, the same as a doctor, it, it seems to me, in like a, a labor market context. Yeah, there's, and, there's, and not in an immigration in, context, right? right? Like the reason that this raised my eyebrows when I was reading through this is that American immigration policy does draw distinctions between low-skilled and high-skilled immigrants in terms of work visas, not necessarily in terms of permanent immigration. It works differently. But on work visas, the definition of high-skilled, the H-1B visa, is you have to have a four-year college degree. And that's kind of the minimum. You know, if you have a four-year college degree, you'd better also have other things that prove your skill level. So previous work on this has been more about, you know, defining high-skilled in the same way the policy system defines high-skilled, whereas this is something that is taking a group of immigrants that aren't getting into the U.S. because of their skills and designating them high-skilled immigrants. Right. This raises the question of, like, 
why exactly this would be. I mean, they they say that this is consistent with political preferences shifting where low-skilled immigrants are more likely to be perceived as competition in the labor market and for public resources. Maybe on public resources, I would sort of really doubt that interpretation on the labor market. Like that would hold if they were using the really elite definition, right? Like if you're talking about, you know, doctors and like physics professors and computer programmers, like a normal person is going to say, okay, those guys aren't driving down my wages. Like I can't do those jobs. There are not that many native-born high school dropouts in the United States. It's not zero people, but that's not a mainstream political constituency whose like labor market needs the political system is incredibly responsive to. A high school graduate is like very much competing with the typical American worker. So I don't quite see why that would be exactly. Now, in terms of public resources, you could imagine a a big difference there, right? It could be that high school graduates versus non-graduates are just much more able to get non-poverty jobs and therefore much less likely to have families that are receiving public assistance. And I'm really happy to believe that, like, that's a big driver. Like, people who are hostile to immigration seem to me to overstate the amount of public assistance that immigrant families are receiving, but also to be very hung up on the idea that immigrant families are receiving public assistance. So the notion that, like, whether or not you encounter people in your community who are foreign-born and who are qualifying for benefits Benefits, uh, makes a difference to politics. Like th- that makes a lot of sense to me, but I, I I don't understand why this would be about labor market competition. Yeah, I mean, I think that there is an indication that it, in the paper, some of the more interesting work they do is looking at how this varies given the type of immigrants, given the type of of county. And one of the things they find is that the shift. You know, generally, there's a shift toward voting for Democrats in places where the increase has primarily been high skilled, shift toward voting for Republicans in places where the increase has primarily been low skilled. The shift toward voting for Republicans, they say, is particularly pronounced in areas with one, more unskilled populations, two, lower urban density, and three, larger public expenditure per unit of GDP. So, like, the places that were already spending a lot on residents, if immigrants start moving into those areas, people start getting stingier, which is consistent with a lot of prior research that shows that, you know, as Matt was saying, the idea that immigrants are going to take your stuff results in people getting a lot stingier with what they want the government to be buying anyway. But the other dynamic that I think is really interesting here is that while some of the – they didn't really – address the idea of different kinds of immigrants being like more assimilable than others culturally. They try to do this with like a linguistic measure, which isn't ideal because Spanish speaking countries, some of them are Spain and some of them are Guatemala. But they do look at what happens when there's a change in immigrants somewhere in your state, but not in your county. And in that case, they find that even when there are more high skilled immigrants moving into the state, if you're the kind of county that is going to be skeptical, you are going to shift toward Republicans, even even though high-skilled immigrants moving into your county shifts it toward Democrats. They suggest that this is kind of a, a media exposure proxy variable, that you may not interact personally with those immigrants if they're not in your county, but you will see about them on the news. I think there's also something to be said for, like, the urban-rural politics within states, often meaning that rural parts of the state feel that the urban parts of the state aren't like real America or aren't like real Virginia or whatever. It's interesting, though, because it does suggest that there is a cultural dynamic here. It's just a cultural dynamic that's less about the kind of immigrant than it is about how people perceive themselves within their states or within their country. Yeah, and one thing I don't know that comes to mind for me thinking about this paper is if I know they talk a lot about this idea, maybe it's the labor market competition or public benefits competition, but it feels like one other option on the table is just seeing people get something that you don't think they should get, particularly with like this, even with like public benefits or jobs, even if it's not your job and it's not like, you know, a program that has a limited number of slots and because someone else gets one, you don't get a slot. I think one of the other dynamics that could be going on here is just, and we've talked about this before, and like I've looked at that in some of my reporting, is a sense of like, who deserves to be doing okay? And maybe you're not 
competing with this particular person for a job, but you, you have the sense that they're working and you can't find a job or that they are getting free health care at some clinic and you're, you know, not eligible because you earn a little bit too much for that. So I kind of wonder about like that other dynamic that's a little bit more abstract. It doesn't suggest that people have to be in competition for the same job, but this perception that someone else who I don't think really deserves a thing is, is getting things. And I feel stressed because I can't get the things I feel like I need to like keep it together for for my for myself and for my family. I also think that that's an important driver here. It's something that Arlie Hochschild calls a deep story that kind of motivates a lot of, of policy preferences. I think the other deep stories, specifically on immigration, is a question of, is this the kind of immigrant that is going to become American or are they going to make my country more like their country? And that's where education becomes super salient. We've seen experimental research where Americans are more likely to select hypothetical immigrants to come to the U.S. if they're more educated, but also if they speak fluent English, if they come from Christian countries. There are lots of factors there that kind of bleed into assimilability. And that's where I think education level is super relevant for this study because it's not necessarily measuring where immigrants are slotting into the labor market. It's measuring whether they're educated enough that like maybe they're more likely to be fluent in English. Maybe they're more likely to, you know, be able to participate in like middle class communities. And that might lead to a sense that this is the good kind of immigrant. And therefore, it's not that they're competing with us for things because they're one of us, whereas immigrants who might be perceived as less assimilable, it's always going to be this zero-sum competition of either we get things or they do. I, I would just say, you know, in terms of my thinking about this, though, something that's important is that knowing that, at least according to this paper, a relatively low bar of, like, skills – puts people over the bar as high-skilled means that, like, you really sort of could imagine reshaping American immigration policy to significantly increase the weight of, you know, quote-unquote highly skilled people in this context without all that dramatically undermining some of the other kinds of values that like there are a lot of people who, you know, have some level of indication they would like to move to the United States. Uh, many, many more that are allowed to under the, the current paradigm. Of those, like relatively few are like going to found the next Google, uh, but a lot have gone to high school. Right. Like that is something that like we, we can do. We can find a million people a year who meet that kind of standard from all different kinds of countries, quite probably while giving a large preference to people who have family connections to the United States. There are, you know, specific instances. There are countries that uh, a lot of people have come from that have very low levels of, of educational attainment on average. It does suggest that you could maybe make this work without having a sort of like super elitist or incredibly exclusionary immigration policy if that's what it takes for people to to sort of feel better about it. But there it, it does become interesting to, to question is like what is it really that makes people feel better about these more educated immigrants? I mean you study this sort of as well as you can but I just don't – I don't exactly know, right? Like if we had huge influx of Central American high school graduates, which like I, I think we don't, but like if we were getting lots of high school graduates rather than non-graduates from those specific countries, would would that impact people very differently? I mean it's – this is suggestive, but I don't know. I, I, I don't know if I would – how much I would bank on it. Yeah, the other grain of salt that I just want to throw in here is this is measuring presidential, Senate, and House elections, and it's measuring them from 1990 to 2010. 2010, I mean, there definitely are th there definitely are like divisions, you know, trends toward less pro-immigrant policymaking from Republicans toward more pro-immigrant policymaking from Democrats during that period. But even in 2010, you did have a lot of House Democrats in more conservative districts running on immigration hawkery. And you did have some Republicans, a lot of Republicans, who were saying the relevant distinction is between legal and illegal immigration, not between good immigrants and bad immigrants. That is not the case so much anymore. A lot of Republicans are either kind of going – 
full-on immigrants are bad, shut it all down, or saying we need to have more of the good immigrants and fewer of the bad ones. And so while I'm not saying that this should be dismissed based on the, the kind of time horizons, I would be interested to see what this study looks like extended a few cycles into the current Trump iteration of the Republican Party. Well, yeah, I mean, because I, I would say, right, I mean, if you look at the 1990 to 2010 period, what you're seeing here is that the presence of low-skilled immigrants is making people more skeptical of the welfare state rather than of immigrants per se, right? I mean, that it's it's post-2010 that you would say there was a big systematic difference between Democrats and Republicans. Like half this period would have been in the 90s right. when politicians disagreed about immigration. But there was, I don't think, a like meaningful partisan gap in the 90s. No. So it's it's definitely, I mean, the 2001 to 2010 period, you have some, you know, you have post 9-11 politics, but you also, you know, literally no presidential election during this period was run on the Democrat is pro-immigration, the Republican is not, whereas both of the presidential elections since the end of that period were run on a certain level on that theme. So it's something to be cognizant of, given how much we know about how messages from the top are going to affect voters' assessments of what's important in their communities, that maybe this was just a happier time. Happier time. (laughs) Speaking of happy times, thanks to everybody who submitted a question for the upcoming Ask the Weeds Anything. We appreciated some great ones there. Uh, Looking forward to to that episode coming together in the future. I want to thank our engineer, Griffin Tanner, our producer, Bridget Armstrong, all of you out there listening, and we will be back on Friday. (laughs) 